Just reminding you too that uh, Naturally Supernatural is this Saturday. It's this one. It's coming really quick and we'd love you to be there, so giddy up, get there. It's going to be great. Um, friends, thank you so much for the warm welcome. Um, and how about I just, uh, yeah, how about we just pray again? Is that okay? We'd love to pray. Let's pray again. Ah, oh, gracious and loving God. To have been in your presence just now has been amazing. We give you thanks for that. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are moving in our midst. We ask that you would give us uh, ears that were open, hearts that were ready to, to receive more of what you want to do today. We pray that we would be attentive to your presence as we draw near to you, Lord. May it be tangible for us in this conversation. And like uh, Paul says to us in Colossians 4, verse 6, may our conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that we may know the answer for everyone. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, I've been um, really uh, supported and loved through the preparation of this. This has been a team effort, really, um, but I'm delighted to be able to be here with you today. A couple of resources I thought I'd just quickly mention. I've been really inspired by a writer and a professional called John Wyatt. He's a professor of neonatal paediatrics, and I have also been really blessed by a book that has been brought out by the Queensland Synod that talks about uh, voluntary assisted dying. It's called, called Remaining in Lament and Hope. Just two resources for you that have really um, supported some of the things we're going to talk about today. Um, Scott's... Um, Alex so beautifully framed the conversation for us. It is a crucial conversation. It's part of a series, I believe this is week four, and it's where we seek to bring together the questions of culture with the beauty of Jesus. And that is our heart's desire that that, that might happen here today. As we said, it's certainly not the last word. Um, but life, when does it start? How should it end? It does raise for us some complex and even painful dilemmas regarding abortion and voluntary assisted dying. So you might be in the room today, as we mentioned, you might be here for the first time. You're very welcome, and it's wonderful that you're here. You might have been a Christian for a while. You might be really young. You might feel as though you're on the older end of the age spectrum. Uh, you might feel as though you actually know a lot about this sort of subject, and I'm grateful that you're here. But actually, it's my conviction that having this conversation and having it in the right way is really, really important. It's not going to be easy, but um, I just pray that we will find Christ-like ways to respond uh, at the end of it all. So how about I start with a story? Uh, late in September 2005, some of you may not have been born, I get that. Um, a lot of my stories unfortunately begin a little bit ago, but my Nana's health took a real uh, turn for the worse. She was moved from a medium care uh, nursing home into a hospice or a palliative care ward. And what had been happening is that she'd been having these sort of mini strokes, but they'd become far more frequent and far more painful and far more distressing. And so, um, yeah, she was moved. And, and um, it was just something that my mum and I um, would go and visit Nan every day. Uh, and just to really witness, we witnessed her being very confused about what had happened. We witnessed her being quite afraid and we witnessed her being in a lot of pain. Other family and friends, of course, visited, but for three and a half weeks, Mum and I, one of us or both of us, just sat with Nan throughout the day and for as long as we could into the night. 
Georgia is um, my youngest child. She's uh, 17 and in year 11 this year, but at the time she was just a few months old, and so she came with me to the hospital to spend time with her great-grandmother. And despite all the memories of blipping machines and blinking lights and um, that technology that's always there, those fluorescent lights that are always there, that kind of slightly off-putting smell of cleaning products. Um, we had some really, really special times, the three of us with my nan. They were hard, and I really remember watching the nursing staff trying to think creatively about how they would almost distract Nan from the things that were distressing her and attend to every area of her pain experience at the end of her life. When she passed away, it wasn't exactly peaceful, but uh, she was quite heavily medicated to assist with her pain and her distress. And there we were, the three of us with Nan, by her bedside, holding her hand, um, little Georgia pop propped up kind of in the corner of her bed, and it was really very special. It makes me ask the question of you, have you ever thought about how you'd like to die? We don't talk about this very much. Uh, we don't talk about it much in society in general. Um, if you are a bit of a fan of any country and Western music, uh, the iconic Kenny Rogers and his song, The Gambler, said that the best you can hope for is to die in your sleep. Uh, wouldn't that be great? But actually, um, we know from research and statistics that we most of us will pass away through a failed cardiac, cardiac pulmonary resuscitation or we'll pass away in an ICU unit surrounded by technology. And as a minister, I've been to so many heartbreaking, gut-wrenching times where, we've been, where I've been called into a hospital bedside or called into the stories of grief and loss of a family. And some of these have been through the most horrible circumstances like motor vehicle accidents and suicide. But when my nan died, it was the first time, the first time that I really had to stare at death. And it was really personal. Friends, you, like me, have stories. You have stories just like this. Uh, they've all, we are all touched by some of these realities. If I can just rewind uh, that story a little bit for you, by just a few months back into early 2005, I was 28 weeks pregnant with Georgia. Um, after a regular checkup with the paediatrician, I was sent off to have an ultrasound and the baby's heartbeat was irregular and that was worth something to investigate. The scan led us to some bad news. It showed three areas of concern, a heart murmur, an echogenic bowel, and the baby was considered to be low birth weight. An echogenic bowel on its own was a soft marker for cystic fibrosis and all three were markers of Down syndrome. Further tests on my husband and I ruled out cystic fibrosis, but the likelihood of Downs was still quite high. Receiving that news was a shock. It was a shock. It caused us to have to think a lot about things, consider things, question things that we'd never had to consider or think about with our previous two children, about parenting, about the long-term considerations of what it is to be a parent for a long time. Friends, at 28 weeks gestation, there was actually no conversation that any staff had with me about uh, terminating the baby. But we know, um, according to statistics, that in Australia, one in three women will have a termination in their life. Actually, I should say up to one in three because um, the data isn't particularly precise. However, we know that there are around about 80,000 abortions performed per year, which is 1,500 per week in Australia. 
you might be wondering who is having the abortions. Um, well, it's actually primarily women between the ages of 20 and 24. And then the next bracket is women in their mid-30s to mid-40s. And then the third largest bracket is teenagers. Many, many, many people are affected by this. Many women, many men. Yet, in church especially, it's a very suppressed subject. It's not talked about very much. I've had 15 years in pastoral ministry. I've not had a single person, woman, come to me as a pastor to speak about this issue. Prior to being in pastoral ministry, I came across this a little bit more frequently. But so it feels like a crisis that within what it is for us to be known as God's people, that it's not a conversation that gets had very often. There is actually silence. Quite often I think that there is a harsh or judgmental rhetoric around this um, topic, maybe by well-meaning Christians. Um, and what that has led me to believe is that people who are experiencing abortion can't possibly open up and share about things, whilst ever that's the impression or that's the message that they're being given. It's a conversation, actually, friends, that we need to have. It's a conversation we need to have with tears in our eyes and with tenderness in our hearts. We must recognise and empathise with the agonising complexity and the pain and the range of emotions that exist within this complex issue. Complex not least because even within this room, if we pay attention to those statistics, there are many women couples here in this room who have already experienced abortion or will have to in the future. So part of our crucial conversations about is, for me, it's about asking some, some big questions. There are some big questions out there, particularly around this topic. Um, some of them fall into the biological category, others fit into much more of an ethical or philosophical or theological framework. But so my questions for us, um, just in, in just scratching the surface here, is to ask two things. When does human life begin? And when is there a person? The first question, when does human life begin, that is actually a purely biological question. It's biological because um, we can determine that at conception, there is, there is D human DNA and it's alive. That tells us that from a biological perspective, life has begun. The DNA is human and it is living. You may find, um, you may struggle to find a biological textbook that says otherwise. However, the more nuanced question and the more um, complex question is when is there a person? And there's lots of different views around this. I feel as though there isn't there isn't even polarizing views, even though we think they exist. But when you dig deep around the polar edges, when you dig deep around the, the outliers, people tend to want to come in and find somewhere sort of towards the middle is where they land in terms of their beliefs or in, in terms of their views. Um, but one, I guess, um, one quite well-known and uh, a person who, is, um, who, just, who defines personhood for us is an Australian-born ethical and political philosopher called Peter Singer. This is one of the ways that Peter Singer talks about life. He says that the worth of life is dependent on the adequate functioning of the cerebral cortex. That a human being who does not have a fully functioning cortex, including a fetus, cannot be regarded as having a right to life with the same value as a human being with a fully functioning cortex. Further to the discussion around personhood, uh, some would argue that for women, there is an important right that they have over their body, a right to bodily integrity, 
a right to autonomy, and that right includes the right to end the life of an unborn child. So I thought we could do something to just think about this a little bit further. There's an image on the screen for you now, and uh, have a bit of a look. I'll kind of talk you through it. Top left-hand corner on this side. Oh yeah, both sides. Um, top left-hand corner, that's you when you were born. That was you when you were born. The next one is you at 20 weeks. Uh, the next image on the right-hand corner is you at 12 weeks. Below is you at six weeks. Middle bottom is you at three weeks. And bottom right is you at three days. Three days uh, of conception. So from when, you were, from when the baby is born right through, these are the six stages um, of um, development of the fetus. I have this question for you as you look at that. As you trace back your own personal history into your mother's womb, is there a point at which you can confidently say, that's not me? That's not me. Let's have a look again. Even though you might think that at three weeks or three days or at seven weeks, that's not me, I'd like to share with you um, that I think God really does think that's you. And I'd love to open up some scriptures for us that uh, just help unpack that a little bit. I'm going to be reading a beautiful psalm, a Psalm 139. I'm going to read most of the psalm if you just be ready to listen and the words will be there for you to follow on on the screen. It goes like this. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light to you. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet existed. This is the word of the Lord. What a beautiful psalm. There's so much in this psalm that we couldn't possibly even just scrape the surface of, really. But the psalmist here is trying to describe for us something that I think he's beyond trying to understand with his mind. I think the psalmist here is giving us some insights in what it is to be, for, for, for his existence to be entirely dependent, bound to God. God the creator, entirely dependent upon, bound to, his whole existence swept up in, caught up in, God the creator. And how at some point, 
trying not to understand how mysterious that is is probably a good thing because it seems to do his head in at certain points. But actually what, what he recognises is that he's content with not having to understand it, but knowing that there is power in the one who has made him and he sits held in that power. It's a beautiful, beautiful psalm. It tells us so much about the character and the nature of God that we don't have time to go into today. But it also tells us some things that are really pointy for us in our conversation. It tells us that God's activity did not commence at the moment of birth. That God is intimately involved in the hidden and marvelous, mysterious process of our development in the womb, that divine loom that is spoken about metaphorically. This means that our worth and our value and our dignity is intrinsic because it lies in how God creates us, knows us, remembers us, and calls us to himself. God saw you at each of those stages. At each of those six stages, he knew you and he was calling you into existence. God created you to, to reflect the complex nature of God's self as he did with all human beings, created them to be complex in terms of the physical, physiological, relational, and spiritual. There is no place in the cosmos that the psalmist can evade God's all-pursuing presence. Not even if he traces his life back to the mysterious origins of the womb. So the psalmist is able to reflect on his past in that verse, you have searched me. His present, you know when I sit and when I rise. And his future, your hand will guide me. I just want to highlight um, that beautiful verse that is quite well known that we'll focus on just for a minute. It's verse uh, 13. It says, for it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And I just want to highlight that because the word womb is a really important Hebrew word. Or, of course, it's an important Hebrew word, but it's got importance to the Hebrew um, people because it's connected in, its, in, in the root of that word to the word compassion. The word compassion and the word womb are actually derived from the same sound or from the same letters. In biblical thinking, the womb is a really special place. It's a sacred place. It's a place of safety. It's a place of security. And it's a place of compassion. It's where God's guiding work is at hand, where his voice is calling a unique being into existence and into relationship with him. Maybe it brings to your mind other images if you're familiar with God as the potter, God as the artist. But sadly, again, if we reflect on those statistics, the most dangerous place for you as an unborn baby, the place where your life could most easily be extinguished, is in the mother's womb. But hey, much more wonderful, much more wonderful for us to think about is that God turned himself into a fetus. God, God who created everything, turned himself into a fetus, turns himself into an unborn baby. Jesus was a fetus. He was with us in the darkness of the womb. And from the same beginnings, he came, he came from the same beginnings as you and I. He came from the same beginnings as you and I. He fully entered into our human experience, fully entered into it, totally, emotionally, in every way, involved. Involved in the joys and involved in the agonies of life, of life. Now that's kind of a fun Advent, kickoff Advent, isn't it? We're not quite there yet. 
It's a little bit early, but there we go. He is on his way. Friends, another thing that a lot of my um, reading and research and preparation has led me to is that um, everything that I've read about really wants to talk about hard cases all the time. These are situations where there has been rape and abuse, where there's been a mother's life, you know, quite significantly at risk, things like ectopic pregnancy, where there are major malformations of a baby. And that is actually um, only 10%, but I stopped myself there because actually there are no hard cases as far as I'm concerned. There are real people involved in this situation. There is no such thing as a hard case for us as Christians to, we need to do some translating whenever we hear that or read that because these are real people. These are real families, these are real couples. These are real tragic situations. And it would be, it would be a moment for us to recognize how important it is for us to never judge, never judge a person um, that felt they had no other option. Never judge. And my belief is that in most cases, women do feel as though there was no other option. We never judge. I was talking to my daughter, Hannah. Um, she's 19 and she's studying law and anthropology at Macquarie University. And I was sharing with her um, a little bit about this topic and she said to me that when the United States Supreme Court ruled in Dobbs versus Jacob that there is now no constitutional right to an abortion, that was overturning the Road versus Wade. Abortion, she said, became a frenetic topic of conversation at uni. She said among her um, Christian friends, she said, Mum, it was like a wave of fear came over my classmates. She said abortion to them is not taken lightly. But she said, Mum, as I listen to their stories, I understand that abortion happens when a series of things go wrong. A series of things go wrong. And she said this, I'm gonna give it to you. She said, they feel as though they can't raise their own child. They don't have safe people or safe places. They don't have safe people or safe places they can go to to talk about it, to be supported, to receive advice, to receive counseling, other than termination. Hearing that did break my heart because pregnancy carries with it enormous burdens and raising a child is hard. But my question was this, what would make it possible to have an unexpected baby? What would make it possible? For someone in my daughter's friend circle at uni, what would make it possible for them to have an unexpected baby? And how do we then respond when we encounter someone who shares about their situation or about their conflict that they're feeling over a decision to keep or to terminate? How do we respond? I think we need to respond firstly with compassion as Christ would have. Let me unpack this. It is actually quite distressing sometimes when I have observed Christians saying things like, it is wrong, it is slaughter, you know, it is evil. I don't think it's ever okay for Christians to say it is wrong without ever immediately saying, and here is the better way, and here is the better way. Christians in the public square do often suffer from this and it is quite an inadequate response. It isn't really a Christ-like response because unless we are at the forefront of providing practical support for unplanned pregnancies, its implications, its costs of raising a child, particularly a child with significant impairment, unless we attend to desperate women in crisis in dire straits, 
unless we be people who are willing to have a conversation and support those from honour and shame cultures, where this is so hard to talk about, unless we are prepared to stand alongside women in terrible, and teenagers, in terrible situations, then our commitment to the sanctity of life, our commitment to that Psalm 139 is at great risk of being flaky and suspicious. What else can we do when we say there is a better way? Well, I want you to imagine with me. I want you to use your imagination for a second. Um, Alex mentioned, you know, the vision of new life about more people, more like Jesus, and what it would mean to plant more churches, leading and planting thriving churches in the Uniting Church. What if the next church we planted, we actually had an intentional crisis pregnancy support service that was part of that church plant? that saw that at the heart of what it was to plant another church was, would be to so strongly consider and decide that that would be a great thing to do in whatever context we're called to plant. That we strongly considered to set it up in such a way so that we were able to lovingly support and invest and journey with men and women experiencing unplanned pregnancy. We would need, I tell you, we would need to come up with solutions that go far beyond the usual scarcity-driven economics of such an endeavor. Right? We would, need, we would need God. We would need a miracle. We would need an income stream to make that happen. We would need to offer post-abortion support with love, with authentic love. We would need to do practical things like care packs, clothes and prams and other things. How would you be? Would you volunteer? Would you be trained? Would you get involved in something like that? It would also possibly be a place where we got serious about supporting um, couples or singles who wanted to adopt. It would be a place where we would be serious about celebrating, whether it be a birth of an unplanned child, married or unmarried, or a planned child to any couple, we would celebrate it. We would celebrate life. That's what we need to do. So showing compassion doing it authentically, thinking about what we say, thinking about the action that needs to come, thinking about what it really is to say there is a better way, and to think of, and to be creative about what we do. And similarly, as we begin to just have to move our minds into thinking about end of life, what it is to show the compassion of Christ at the end of life, it's something that we need to consider given that there is now a new piece of legislation coming into being on the 1st of January. The new legislation says that voluntary assisted dying gives people who are suffering and dying and who meet eligibility criteria the option of requesting medical assistance to end their lives. Just very quickly, by voluntary we mean that there is consent, that it's offered free of coercion and that they have capacity. Assisted means that they have access to a substance to legally end life and that a practitioner is there to administrate it. And by dying, we mean that the intention is to end the life of the person. Now, you may not have thought of this. You know, it may not, it may not have been something that has um, you know, come across your radar, so to speak. Or maybe this legislation is bringing some changes that are going to bring some confusion and some concern if you are with a loved one facing end of life. Maybe you are someone who believes that um, voluntary assisted dying may have an massive impact on our healthcare and our social services systems. Maybe you work in that industry. 
And you can see this being uh, a real kind of game changer, maybe because there is this whole discussion about the slippery slope argument. And we do see in countries like Canada and also parts of Europe, where they have almost eradicated hospice and end of it, sorry, aged care facilities purely based on cost. Holland has also actually uh, eradicated Down's, almost eradicated Down syndrome as well through termination of babies. Maybe you're like Andrew Denton, uh, uh, kind of a much-loved Aussie producer, presenter and comedian who has himself been very vocal about voluntary assisted dying because he had to see a loved one suffer so terribly at the end of their life. Um, but having said all that, the synod that we're a part of here, the Queensland Synod, has provided um, a basis by which in the Uniting Church, it's aged care, it's hospice and it's hospitals, where voluntary assisted dying legislation will be enforced on January, January 1, they will not be participating. I can just read to you briefly a comment that is made um, that I mentioned in this book. As a church, we believe in the God-given God dignity and worth of every human life. We are committed to all that Jesus began to do and teach, referencing Acts 1, verse 1, by working towards a society characterised by love, compassion, justice, inclusion, reconciliation, so that all people at every stage of life can experience life in all its fullness. We seek to witness to God's good gift of creation and the intrinsic worth and dignity of all people in every circumstance that is grounded in a reality that is untouched by the circumstances of our life or death. They go on to say that we believe that although end of life can be challenging and distressing, it can also be a time of powerful hope and renewal. So the Uniting Church, for its agencies, for its aged care hospice and hospitals, are not participating in the legislation, but we're still within some guidelines of that legislation. It leads us to maybe ask just two questions quite briefly, um, as we also, again, are heading towards how we might respond. But the question, some of the questions for me is, what is actually our Christian thinking about dying? The Synod has given us a beautiful response. It has affirmed something that I think we truly believe, that Christianity is a life-affirming faith. And that means that all of life, including how we suffer and die, matters to God. And it has worth and it has value. There is no person that is not created and loved by God. And God's creation is good. All human life is made in God's image and is a reflection of God's personhood. Ultimately, as Christians, we seek to witness to the good news of God with us. God with us. Emmanuel. We, we seek to bear witness to this in every circumstance and that the presence of God in Jesus Christ made known through the Holy Spirit is the primary source, the primary source of our hope and our strength and our power, even in incredible weakness and suffering, so that we can say that God's grace is sufficient for us and that his power is made perfect in our weakness. What about suffering? What about suffering? I think actually this was a topic of a crucial conversation that happened sort of this time last year. Where is God in our suffering? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How long, how long, the psalmist says, how long will you forget about me? These are profound questions and I don't have neat or simple answers for us today. But Jesus in the Passion Narratives, he is deeply aware of the suffering that is going to go ahead of him. He cries out to God, remove this cup from me. 
And this cry is then followed by a commitment of Jesus to follow God's will in his life. So how then do we respond? How then do we respond? Well, we respond God's way. Let me explain that to you. That to witness suffering in another person is a call to us to stand in community. A call to be there. Suffering is not a question that needs an answer. It's not a problem that necessarily needs a solution. It's a mystery that demands a presence. Are we able to be that community? Are we able to stand with those? Are we able to be present to those who are facing end of life? Cecily Saunders is, the, is considered the inventor of palliative care. Just a profoundly intelligent, beautiful, Christian, older now woman who says this, you matter because you matter, and you matter to the end of your life. What great thing we could say to someone as we companion with people on this kind of journey, facing their suffering, facing their pain, facing their questions, to say you matter because you matter and you matter till the end of your life. Jesus was also a dying man. There is nothing that you or I could go through in life that God in the person of Jesus Christ has not experienced. And I guess this topic really shines the light on that, that he was with us in the darkness of the womb and Jesus will be with us in the darkness of the tomb. We are indeed fragile clay jars. We are fragile. But we can say with scripture that the light of Christ shines in the darkness and darkness does not overcome it. And so therefore we are called to engage in this complex and painful stuff. We are called to engage in this subject, in this question of life when it begins and how it ends. And we're called to engage with it for Christ. For Christ. Most wonderfully, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 10, we are God's workmanship. We are his masterpiece. Um, the Greek word is actually also translated as his poem. You and I are God's workmanship, his masterpiece, and his poem created in Jesus Christ to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. In advance for us to do. Therefore, putting every day that we work and serve into the Lord's hands, we will discover that he has been there before us, preparing us, giving us opportunities, a good work that he has prepared for me and for you to do. Just going back to my story as we come into land. I remember very clearly my husband and I praying together that night that we got back from the hospital over our little unborn child. We were in shock. We hadn't had the chance to talk very much about it. We were both just trying to take it all in. But that night, prayer seemed to come really easily. I think it was just that realization that sometimes prayer is the only thing you can do. Lord, we said, you know this little person so well already. You love this little one so much. Would you help us to be more like you? And would you give us what we need each day to trust you with all our heart? 
Friends, there is no human situation. There's no action. There's no action, something that you did or something that you didn't do. There's no pain or there's no suffering that is beyond the reach of the love of God. It is witnessing to the resurrection and the new life that emerges out of the deepest experiences of despair, hopelessness, and pain. We witness to the resurrection in these moments. New life emerges in these moments, in these very difficult and painful circumstances. In Christ, we find a new beginning because Jesus has made us forgiven. Jesus has made us forgiven. Remember that humanity is not divided up into guilty and innocent. That's not how how Christ calls the community of Christ himself. Because I am guilty, we are all guilty, but rather the divining line is forgiven and unforgiven. Jesus gave his life that we could be forgiven. And I think that one of the really difficult parts, the complexities of this, is that sometimes there is the need to forgive oneself. And that's hard. But it's made easier, isn't it? Because we actually come to one with arms extended wide, embracing us with all of what's gone on, with all of the complexity, with all of the heartache, with all of the, did I make the right decision? With all that stuff, we are embraced. We can be forgiven, we just need to seek the Lord for that. We just need to ask, that's all we need to do. In Christ, we find a new beginning. By God's grace, painful experiences, painful things can be I believe with all my heart they are slowly and miraculously transformed, redeemed by God's power. And then they may even be a source of help for others' healing, for others, a source of help and healing for others. Would you just continue on with me for a few minutes as we just come to a time of prayer and a little bit of reflection. Would you like to just bow your head for a moment? Might I just ask you, where have, where have you been aware of God's presence this afternoon as we've gathered? Where have you been aware of God's presence? Where do you find yourself right now? Maybe you're just aware of the loving arms of your creator. Maybe there's a strange quickening in your heart that you know that Jesus is real. Maybe that's for the first time. Maybe you find yourself at the foot of the cross. Maybe you're aware that God is unfurling his banner of goodness over you right now. I believe that he wants to show us his goodness today some more. And so if there is something going on in your heart for the first time, if you have heard and maybe understood for the first time 
that you are created and loved with a purpose, that you are created and loved with value and meaning, that your existence is actually wrapped up in the story and the love of God. And if that's something that you want to confess, if you like, if that's something that you want to own and celebrate and commit to, say yes to, say yes, I'm all in for that today. Would you like to just raise your hand so that, so that we could pray as a community around you? Thank you. I see that hand. Thank you. I'm just going to wait a moment. So friends, let's say this beautiful prayer together with our brother here who's coming to Jesus for the first time or aware of his presence in a new way today. Let's pray this together. I'll say it and would you say it after me? God, today I confess for the first time or afresh that you are Lord of all. I ask you to please come into my heart. I ask that I could receive your forgiveness. I thank you for your loving grace. I thank you for your creative power in my life. And I ask that you would walk with me this day and every day onwards. Amen. Amen. And just as we come to worship now, could I just continue with a prayer that Jesus actually said, or it was, it was some instructions, if you like, but I'm going to pray it over us now. And it says this, it's from Matthew 11. You'll probably be familiar with it. But Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, all you are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Church, receive that precious exchange this afternoon. Let's continue to see what the Lord wants to do as we worship.